This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey, exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks, forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks again for joining us. Today we're headed to what's commonly known as the city's living room, Pioneer Courthouse Square. Since its completion in 1984, the square has become possibly the most beloved public space in town, hosting political speeches, trailblazer rallies, concerts, charity events, community festivals, holiday celebrations, and much more. With rail and bus stops along its edges, Pioneer Courthouse Square is a major transit hub. It's also a common meeting place for locals and a beginning point for tourist sightseeing groups. It just naturally feels like the center of the city. The quintessential Pioneer Courthouse Square moments are when it's packed with people, which happens many times each year. The biggest gathering may have been in 2001, when the Dalai Lama spoke to a crowd estimated at 25,000 spilling from the square onto surrounding streets. The Dalai Lama said, quote, You have marvelous houses, very good. But if you live in these big houses with a turbulent mind, with an agitated mind, with a fearful mind, you will not be a happy person. Two of the square's most memorable moments were actually botched efforts. In 2009, after comedian Dave Chappelle announced on social media a free midnight stand-up set at Pioneer Courthouse Square, he was overwhelmed by the size of the crowd. Chappelle arrived by himself, carrying only a small microphone and a battery-powered speaker, expecting hundreds and instead encountering thousands. And he had to end a set early because most people couldn't hear. Chappelle said, quote, This has never happened in my entire career. Don't tell a secret in Portland. But the comedian also said he was proud to see an occasion when people could stand this close together and not be angry. Those words were telling because one year later, At the square's annual Christmas tree lighting in 2010, an attempted car bombing was foiled by an FBI sting operation, resulting in the arrest of Mohammed Osman Mahmoud, who is now spending a 30-year sentence in federal prison. More recently, when I visited Pioneer Courthouse Square during the height of the pandemic this past winter, there was still activity. 
an art installation called Polka Dot Downtown by artist Bill Will that created a series of socially distanced small performance spaces, looking a little bit like a giant game of Twister. Polka Dot Downtown remains ongoing, and it's a testament to the square's role in the city, to be the stage for our greatest celebrations, but also to help us rise up during tough times. Pioneer Courthouse Square was designed in an architectural style that turned out to be short-lived, and one that was very much a creature of the 1980s, postmodernism, with its oversized historical references. Yet even today, Pioneer Courthouse Square doesn't seem dated. It seems timeless. Martin's design is based on the ancient Greek Agora, a town square where people come together to celebrate, to sell things, to argue, to commemorate. There is no fountain in the middle, and that's deliberate, so the center of the square can instead be filled with people. All the while, underfoot, are thousands of bricks, each inscribed with the name of a different supporter who has donated. Many did so back in the early 80s in order to help save the square before it was even built, when Mayor Frank Ivancy threatened to pull funding. Will Martin's architectural firm, known as Martin, Soderstrom, and Madison, was the local underdog that won the Pioneer Courthouse Square Commission against some internationally famous architects from other cities, such as Charles Moore and Peter Eisenman. Yet Martin, a flamboyant character known for his trademark fedora and cigar, like some low-rent Humphrey Bogart, won the competition in part by making the design process collaborative, involving a host of local artists and designers as a kind of brain trust. Tragically, Will Martin died only about one year after Pioneer Courthouse Square was completed. While piloting his small plane, the architect and his son crashed into the wall of the Grand Canyon. Yet even if he didn't live to see it, the square has become successful beyond Martin's wildest dreams. Let's listen for a moment to an interview Will Martin did with Coin6 TV news reporter Mike Donahue on the eve of the square's opening in 1984. Martin and his team planned a people-oriented space, accessible from all sides and defined by terraces, an amphitheater, columns, and a glass pavilion eating area. The project is expected to be completed by the summer of 1983. My whole idea of the square is that it's off by and for the people, if you will pardon the parody on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I hope it'll be wall-to-wall people. I really think it will be. I think the square will get an incredible amount of use. That's what we designed it for. Well, you should feel good to winning national competition. You're the, the local boy. Uh, do you feel that was an advantage or a disadvantage being from the Portland area? Well, I think it was a tremendous advantage. I, I, I doubt if I have any more talent than any of the other contenders. But I live here. I've lived here for 20 years. I was able to come up here at 2 o'clock in the morning and, and see what it was like with the uh, lighting qualities. I was here one night in the cold, freezing rain. You know, and, and the sense of Portland, the sense of what the people are about, uh, I had an advantage. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Will Martin, the human being. Uh, here you are, a lover of classics and appreciator of uh, Roman and Greek architecture, and yet you were born in the Ozarks. Somehow those two don't seem to, uh, to jive, at least uh, on the initial look. How did you come from the Ozarks to where you are now? Well, actually, I look at, at my uh, childhood background as, as being a great contributor to what I'm doing now. Uh, life was simple. I dealt with the natural forces. Uh, I became a lover of nature. You lived on a farm, man. It was a living on the rural situation. My father taught me the joy of, of work, hard work, 
My mother taught me the, the beauty of poetry and music, and it was probably the best training I've had. And so in that case, I think it was a great preparation for what I finally decided to do, which is to become an architect. I had a scholarship to travel to Europe uh, when I was a student in 1955, and that had a strong influence on what I did with the rest of my career. Uh, what were some of the favorite things that you saw in Europe? That, oh, my, there were numerous. Uh, some you, of the ones that perhaps... Uh, well, you can imagine a kid at 25 years old uh, being in Rome, for example, for the first time. When I walked into St. Peter's, I couldn't believe it. It was so overpowering, and so immense, and so incredibly wonderful. Uh, we, I traveled through France, I traveled in England and, and, uh, and Italy. I remember the last day when I was in Paris before I came home. It was autumn, and there's no light like the autumn light in Paris. And I went down to uh, the cathedral, Notre Dame, for the last time, and stood in front of her like she was some great lady and paid tribute in the beautiful autumn light filtering down through the trees in front of the building. I'll never forget that image as long as I live. It was very impressive. Is this your crowning achievement, or uh, will there be more to come? What is Will Martin looking for in the future? What are you going to try to do? Well, the same kind of thing, Pioneer Squares elsewhere? Well, most of us uh, really don't want to admit it's our last crowning achievement, you see. There's always the next project that you're looking forward to. Uh, there may be more open spaces of this type of design. I think it's going to be a, a, a strong success, and I think it may have some influence on the future work of this type. Uh, supposedly, the old, again, the old saw is that you really don't reach your optimum design capability until you're about my age, which is about 50. So uh, I'm not sure I've reached the, the peak yet or not. I like to think that there's a lot more to come yet. Of course, this site was active for more than a century before Pioneer Courthouse Square was built. Standing here originally was Central School, which in 1858 opened its doors as the city's first public school and the first public building in Portland of any kind. In 1890, Central School was torn down to make way for the Portland Hotel, which stood on this site until 1951. It was the city's first grand hotel, and the ultimate gleaming symbol of Portland's rise from muddy frontier town to an increasingly wealthy late 19th century city, newly connected to the rest of America by railroads. The Portland Hotel had a stilted birth. After its foundation was laid, construction was halted halfway through when the hotel's benefactor, Northern Pacific Railroad magnate Henry Villard, lost much of his fortune in the Panic of 1884 and was forced to leave the company. When the hotel finally opened five years later, it was described by the Oregonian as, quote, the finest, largest, and best in the Pacific Northwest. In 1895, famed writer Mark Twain stayed at the Portland Hotel following a performance at the nearby Markham Grand Opera House. Then, in both 1924 and 1926, baseball legend George Herman Babe Ruth of the New York Yankees was a guest at the hotel. A succession of American presidents also stayed at the Portland Hotel. In 1903, Teddy Roosevelt made the first of two visits, even delivering a speech from the balcony of his room after his remarks earlier that day at Washington Park had been curtailed by heavy rain. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt stayed at the Portland Hotel three times, in 1934 for the groundbreaking of Bonneville Dam, in 1937 for its dedication, 
and an unreported 1942 trip during World War II to visit the Kaiser shipyards. After the hotel's 1951 demolition, for 20 years there was a two-story parking garage on this site for the nearby Meyer and Frank department store. But in the 1970s, Meyer's application to build an 11-story parking garage was denied. The city's 1972 downtown plan had proposed a park or other public gathering space on this site, which by 1982 finally came into being. At the end of this episode, I'm going to share with you some memories I've collected from dozens of different people about Pioneer Courthouse Square. But in the meantime, we have three interviews. First is Portland architect Mark Lakeman, whose father, the city's chief urban designer, worked closely with Will Martin in the early 80s to make the square a reality. Through Lakeman's firm Communitecture and his nonprofit City Repair Project, today he's become one of the city's most thoughtful and important designers. The second interview is with musician Thomas Lauderdale of legendary Portland band Pink Martini, which has sold over 2.5 million albums worldwide. Thomas is a board member of the nonprofit running Pioneer Courthouse Square, and in addition to performing there many times and organizing a political rally or two there, he also curates the square's annual Christmas tree lighting and sing-along. Congressman Earl Blumenauer has called Thomas Lauderdale, quote, the creative laureate of Portland. Let's listen for a moment to Pink Martini leading a combined sing-along and political rally at Pioneer Courthouse Square in 2011 in solidarity with the Occupy Wall Street movement with a rendition of Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. Our third interview guest is Alex Craghead, an instructor at the University of California at Berkeley and author of the 2016 book Railway Palaces of Portland, Oregon, The Architectural Legacy of Henry Villard. Alex will tell us more about the Portland Hotel and a little bit more about its larger-than-life benefactor, Henry Villard. So let's get started, and thanks again for listening. Mark, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. My pleasure, Brian. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thanks a lot. Um, I wondered, for starters, if you could um, kind of talk about the first time encountering Will Martin or, or maybe even hearing about him. And uh, it might be good as a backgrounder. I, I got interested when I talked with you in the past that uh, if I remember right, your dad um, uh, introduced you to Will and that he was like an urban designer with the city of Portland or something like that. It, I remember you said something like uh, almost like a bedtime story that you had heard. So what were your kind of first introductions to Will Martin as a kind of character or a person? Yeah. Okay. So 
my father was the founder of the urban design division of the Bureau of Planning. He was hired by then planning director Lloyd Keefe to come from the East Coast where he had just uh, come with a master's from Yale and he was brought to the West Coast to get that function of the Planning Bureau started. So until that point, you know, we we had a planning bureau that was doing the best work that he ca that we that we that we could, but we didn't have a kind of visioning function that um, brought the inherent kind of placemaking objectives of urban design to the bureau to the city. Uh -huh. And so um, he was also hired to kind of be expendable because he was this hot kind of firebrand um, who had the sufficient arrogance to be able to take on projects like advancing Pioneer Square and Waterfront Park and several other projects like the the beginnings of the Pearl District and, and others, other projects like South Waterfront. Um, so, you know, but he also had practical experience, the chops to be able to get stuff done technically. And while he was there, one of his first assignments was to start helping um, some of the grassroots energy of Pioneer Square that had kind of been fomenting for a while to kind of take up and uh, kind of get up and start to walk. And of course, this was counter to the uh, to the to the kind of political cultures uh, goals at the time to build a 10-story parking garage on the site instead and that was um, interestingly that was uh, oh gosh the the head of Myron Frank um, forgot his name now unfortunately but he should figure he should figure in your book I think because mm. um, my father has always felt that the square ended up most appropriately being named after him because not if not for his graciousness the square would never have happened uh -huh. um, so uh, yeah there was a big fight and Myron Frank wanted the, a parking garage but there the fact that they decided that they deferred and instead supported the um, that they turned and supported the uh, the development of Pioneer Square was really a huge philosophical swing Will Martin was key to that and I'm sure that I heard Will Martin's name a few times in my bedtime stories as I would wait as I would wait for my father to come home and tell me what had happened that day in his you know fight for the destiny the 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 practical and aesthetic destiny of the city of Portland um, so I would you know be listening and I I don't think really I, I grounded quite who Will Martin was until my dad took me to see an exhibition of his his um, botanical studies and we yeah. were just talking about like flowers, um, you know, paintings of them, like dissecting and getting into the um, intricate workings and the geometries of the unfolding, um, self-unfolding of different kinds of um, flora in the world that, that Martin was, was like lovingly and lavishly studying. Yeah, he was quite an artist. Yeah, he was truly, I mean, he's the definition of the Renaissance person. Um, to have like such a command of both art and technical design at the same time. Um, he was really, he was a legend in his own time. Um, I think my, my sense is that kind of he was just broadly understood to be um, of, of a genius level by the, by the urban culture of Portland, uh, by, especially by the design culture. He was like the, the, the measuring stick. He was like I don't know. There's different archetypes you 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 get introduced to in school. Of course, there's the Howard Rourke, but um, yeah, uh, Will Martin the was head. yeah, which was I don't know, kind of sociopathic actually, in my per <laughs> opinion. But um, Will Martin was the Da Vincian. He was the Da Vincian archetype and lived up to it uh, in every respect.
Yeah, yeah. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as uh, well, actually, first, I think I should go back. I'm catching myself because I think this is an important point for people to understand that that uh, Will Martin kind of uh, helped sell the idea of a future Pioneer Courthouse Square. But then he had to enter a design competition to kind of win the actual commission for the square. So in a sense, he had a leg up. Uh, on getting the commission because he would go on to defeat some kind of much more nationally famous designers in, in winning the commission for Pioneer Courthouse Square. But it's it's interesting that that in a sense he uh, um, was an underdog, but in a sense he had a kind of inside track. Uh, so it's that duality is interesting in that way. Yeah, he understood the conditions more from having lived here, but also having gone through a a full design cycle. Yeah, so uh, the Urban Design Division hired Will Martin to do a design charrette, and they worked with him in kind of analyzing the context and generating the program, and then Martin spent a weekend just um, blasting out this, uh, you know, fantastic representation of of a design vision for the site that was... um, you know, at least as interesting as what we ended up with. And the, the design division, urban design division needed that in order to, um, like, their strategy, their strategy was to take the design out into the city. The resistance that they were getting from this sort of half the city council and the mayor, um, which was was Frank Ivancy by that time, meant that they had to build grassroots support. And then they just really dedicated themselves um, to, the, to the extent that they would lose their jobs. And jobs were threatened um, because they were pushing back on the city council itself and the mayor. But they tried to build grassroots support and they needed a, a, they needed a compelling vision and Martin was the person they turned to for that. And uh, as Randy Gregg has pointed out, Martin didn't have a lot of public space design experience. Um, on the other hand, it was widely known that he had been studying great public spaces through the entire history of, of, of architecture, culture, um, through his travels and his, his own independent studies. Mm-hmm. So he had a, um, a really, uh, and a deeply sort of seated poetic perspective on the possibilities of public space. Yeah. So he was an exciting option. But when it came to the competition, it was an international competition with the heavyweights of the time. Um, I think 300 or so entries were received, 250, 350, something like that. Uh-huh. And um, it was winnowed down, I believe, to four four finalists. And uh, Peter Eisenman was one of them. Yeah, with this yeah. Absolutely. Famous theorist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Famous uh, theorist. Postmodern theorist uh, who went on to design the Arizona Cardinals football stadium (laughs) amazingly uh yeah i never thought he had a sporting bone in his body but um yeah he charles moore yeah charles moore uh silvetti machado i think and um and one other oh of course martin so that was Mm -hmm. they were the four finalists and it was just a shock that will martin had made it into the finals uh you know and and the charles moore scheme as as we've kind of discussed to me is it actually had some of the most interesting possibilities because yeah, they were really seeing that unlike a great crossroads, this one was kind of made into an island by being surrounded by busy streets. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, 
you know, you want you want to have an immediacy of the vital edges to support the public space, and that's what people love about the piazza. Um, but in the American public square version, you, you you kind of have to bring over something onto that island, like we did with what ended up becoming that Starbucks in the northwest corner. But uh, uh, Charles Moore said, let's just bring the 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 retail function of the building just immediately to the north over the street and bring it onto the block so that we yeah. have this you know all, you know automatically programmed space or at least you know commercially supported space all the time and i think that immediately disqualified him from the competition because it was too complex to uh, yeah. work out but it's an interesting idea that 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 public space is activated by retail so why not just put retail right up front yeah martin's um martin's kind of gesture in that direction was to, and this is actually something people don't speak about when they're giving tours, but it should be understood that when you look at, especially the northern edge of Pioneer Square, and you see that there's this rhythm of columns on both actually the south and northern edge, but where he holds the columns um, as a complete like rhythm along the southern edge, he does that because the building across the street has no rhythm. It has no worthy rhythm. But on the northern edge, the, the building is really spectacular. And so he dissolves the columns and allows the rhythm of the building across the street to come into the space. So it's, it's, it's kind of along the same lines of wanting the, the space to relate to the context around it and have them speak to each other and reinforce each other. Interesting. And, you know, I had wanted to ask you anyway, if, if you could kind of explain kind of to, a, to a, let's say, the members of the audience listening to this who, who who aren't architects and and have a kind of layperson perspective i wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about um what exactly they're seeing in pioneer courthouse square and how it's kind of drawing from certain um ancient traditions of of gathering places um and uh, at the same time it's uh, got these certain pieces that that people see, like you mentioned, the Starbucks, or the way that there's this kind of curving walkway that that doubles as a kind of stairway and amphitheater. Um, to to people who who spend years of their lives on various occasions going to a place like that, but don't quite know what they're experiencing, how would you describe it in in that way? Gosh. Oh, I have to take a deep breath. Um, there are so many layers of inspiration and meaning and historical reference and then personal um, artistic expression uh, that, you know, the, the design team that Martin was kind of the ringleader for uh, and that Martin himself and what he brought to it. Um, so, of course, you know, there's these historical artifacts that are a nod to the fact that the Portland Hotel was there. Uh -huh. um, some of the grill work and stuff. So, you know, you, you do, you just, there's some of that going on where there's a nod to the continuity of what had always been there. I think maybe the first school or, was either on or near that site. Yeah, um, Central School. Yeah, first public building in the history of the city. So I think that this, the significance of the block um, is embedded in the design, the appreciation and the consciousness um, of its role in the, hist in, the, in the history and destiny of the city is really embedded into the love that, <laughs> that went into the design. Um, so fundamentally, the design takes, takes advantage of the um, topography. You know, it's kind of like a basic cut and fill in a way. It, the the design, design is to be a great gathering place with interesting um, 
edges and subspaces so that it can be inhabited by lots of different things going on all at once. Um, so that's its kind of essential program. But then it needed to really be of its place. And so digging into the slope and taking advantage of the slope and making it so that you can enter on one level and then move through the site and descend or ascend and come out the other, the other site on level um, so that it's beautifully adapted to its condition um, is really part of how it's of its place. Um, and no less important, the fact that it's made out of brick, bricks that are stamped by the people who sort of dedicated themselves by contributing money or buying a brick um, is another level of how it's of its place. Of course, it's an impervious surface. It needs to be that. It needs to be a warm color. It needs to be beautifully textured and human scaled and broken up with a kind of design grid and subgrids within grids. But the uh -huh. fact that you're walking on names of people is like, it's essential to the story that Mayor Ivancy tried to kill it, defund the square. He wanted it to be privatized space. He wanted it to be exclusive. They were, they were afraid of, of so-called hippies and so-called you know, homeless people. Um, and so they wanted to make it a controlled space that was more interior than exterior. And they really wanted yeah. to defeat it being a gathering place, actually. So um, the fact that there, you walk across all of these thousands of, and thousands of names um, is an expression of the fact that it became a grassroots strategy just to, to generate funding to complete the square. Apparently, I haven't couldn't rescind the approval, but he could try to take the money away. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great point, the names. That's something about the design that I think is really essential, but it's easy to, to, to forget. Um, and it occurred to me while you were saying that, that, uh, um, it, you know, Pioneer Courthouse Square was not that many years uh, away from uh, a project, an iconic project like My Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial, where you have a list of names that are part of a, a memorial, a commemoration, or, you know, you had had something similar here in Portland at, at Memorial Coliseum, which has since been renamed Veterans Memorial Coliseum. With It was originally built with these, with, with a very uh, a similar kind of list of names of local casualties in World War II, um, kind of prefiguring Mylan's Veterans Memorial in, in D.C., I guess. But it's interesting that, that Martin um, could take, and, and his team could take that idea and reverse it and make it into a, a kind of joyful thing that expresses the kind of um, patchwork quilt of democracy. And, and I think there's a lot of metaphorical, um, you know, value in, the, the, like you were saying, the, the, this, um, these thousands of, of bricks um, with people's names on them uh, that like, you know, this, this brick is, you know, almost kind of representing the, 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 the inherent strength of um, lots of people believing in something. Yeah, I think the, the, the solidity of it, the, the feeling of it being permanent um, is part of that, definitely. Well, I would add some more things. You know, when people talk about the, the square and um, they tend to talk about its features, like the fellow, the, the effigy of the guy with the umbrella look, waiting for the bus or calling for a t taxi or something, mm -hmm. or that kind of weather machine. I mean, those are wonderful little touches um, that were actually added or completed later. But um, there's just so much more to the story, which is kind of at the profound core of it all. Uh, you know, Martin was particularly enamored of the Gian G, uh, Fibonacci spiral, and it appears in lots of his um, design projects and his art, um, his fascination with the um, growth process 
that was really so deeply explored in his botanical studies. Uh, so when you walk into the square, you know, very famously in the northwest corner, there's that kind of echo, there's that smaller amphitheater with the little echo spot. And, and people know about that because it's, it's so loud when you stand there and you speak. But the bigger one, of course, is where you stand in the very center of the square on the, on the Fibonacci bronze disc, which Martin meant to be the center. It's like the center of the city. Now, going back to folks like um, Camilo Cite, who's kind of like the godfather of urban design um, for us in the 20th, 21st century, one of his dictums that Martin was honoring was that um, the space should always be left open. That, you, that, that if you occupy the center with an effigy of a politician or some kind of fountain or, or statue, you've created a nuclear square. And a nuclear square is always dominated by a political philosophy. And um, as opposed to that, the idea of a village square is always left open so that you can attain the center. And not just for Cite, it wasn't just so that you could stand there and look at it and see that it was open, so therefore it was attainable by you. That it need, that it you you actually for people with a deeply rooted sense of place, that it needed to be accessible to you even in your dreams. You need to be able to dream of that open center. So Martin took it to the max. He created like in this emblem of the origin or the impulse of the universe itself to, to self-unfold and self-evolve, which is the Nautilus geometry. So he put that at the very center. When you stand there and you make even the slightest sound, the stramp or stair ramp reflects it back to you um, where you stand. And that's the spiritual geographic center of Portland, Oregon. And when I say ge geographic, it's just that, you know, the center of Burnside Bridge might be the geographic center because it's where all of the quadrants actually, you know, technically meet. But the fact that the urban center is the center of the city and it's cradled within the landform of the West Hills, it's the center. And that, that, that emblem is the center of the city. Yeah, yeah. And I keep coming back to what you said a couple of minutes ago about people forming the center and what a powerful idea that is like uh that when you're at a huge gathering where the square is is full of people the the stage if there's a stage like a a, a temporary stage for a performance or something is is kind of in a corner and and the people are the are in a sense i wanted to say earlier when you were talking almost like the people are the fountain um uh, that uh, when I think of like it being like a, a Gulf War protest in 1990 or a, or a election celebration in November of 2020 or some Blazers moment being celebrated, uh, um, you know, all those things happen with people in the center of the square. Uh, it, it's like expressing an idea of democracy in a way. You know, just like this, yes. <laughs> Just like they say that we have to be ever vigilant to guard our democracy, I think um, when it comes to the design of public space, you can see a, con a great like history-wide history conversation happening that's kind of going back and forth. Um, you know, for, for advocates of the square, we're really satisfied. It's like, yes, we have that open space. It needs to remain open. And then there's others that say, but the space should be filled. Like, I, I, you know, there, some days there aren't people there. Well. It needs to be an open space all the time. The idea that, I mean, I love the ZGF proposal of years ago to kind of put an ice, permanent ice ring into the kind of northeast kind of quadrant. 
because um, it was a beautiful object, but it was really beside the point and it got smacked down because it was really inappropriate to the whole philosophy of having open space. Oh, yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, your own work, like uh, Communitecture and the City Repair Project, and and how um, the work that you and your team do is reflective of some of those ideas. Like, it seems to me that what I know about um, the work you've done, um, creating a sense of place in it, in a, like even in some place as humble as the middle of a residential intersection that you can th- um, create place anywhere. It's like you're bringing the idea you expressed about Pioneer Courthouse Square and making the people the center of the space. It's like you, you, you've you brought that to just what somebody might see as a garden variety residential intersection. But that's a really powerful idea that I think Will Martin would like, the idea of that, that any neighborhood intersection can be its own mini Pioneer Courthouse Square. Yeah. In fact, there's a direct link, and it was celebrated, I think, two summers ago in in the squ- in Pioneer Square itself, um, all the painted intersections, you know, began with Pioneer Square itself. When um, Martin had the idea that we would hold our own insurrection against Ivancy and paint the rooftop of the Myron Frank parking lot to get ready for the square to happen, and that taught me um, that we could take space and make place very rapidly um, through a huge participatory exercise where everyone would just be like, "Whoa, look at what we did!" Just you know, and the fact that it's a flat surface means that almost anyone can help, and um, you can get it done very quickly with a huge emotional impact. Yeah, um, that's immediate. So this is the thing about city repair. I learned through the work that we did to retrofit Portland with Pioneer Square and Waterfront Park that we could change the world. We could, re- you know, re- repair the colonial grid by putting in the public spaces that were really absent that would otherwise have been the genesis of place for this culture instead we have to put back retroactively yeah so city repair says oh wow this is a this is a story that started long before i mean this is a project that we've been on this is the project of portland oregon and so infilling the insulae of the residential grid with the you know punctuating it with public spaces was like the next move um to transform the city in that way yeah and using paint to do it helps to make it really clear that there's a continuity of 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 the issue um and i think that the the, that this is a cause that promises to transform the culture of design itself Uh i just keep thinking like the most essential thing that's missing to me that lets all this this dystopic stuff play out is our disconnection from each other at the most local level and the absence of gathering places and the absence of forums for people to engage and create. And so to me, this grassroots solution is an essential, um, an essential cause. And it's the one I'm dedicated to, but I think it's the cause of Portland itself, even if we don't all agree on it. I uh-huh. think that it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, this interconnection of, our, of ourselves with our place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so we have lots of projects that are rather like that, uh, that... You know, all 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 have something to do with <laughs> making the world a better place. And and you know, if we don't, if it doesn't have that overarching huge goal, then at the very least, people are just like, yes, I am responsibly infilling the urban grid with, you know, more housing, and I'm localizing living and working, and I'm, you know, making more walkable neighborhoods, and 
you know, providing a, a village scale, human scale kind of like habitat that will, you know, hopefully affect the minds of developers. And everybody's got some kind of larger idea when they work with us, even if their project is physically small. That's great. That's great. Um, well, in the meantime, uh, uh, this may be a good point to wrap up. And so uh, I guess I finally just have left to say, uh, Mark, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thanks, Brian. It's such a pleasure. In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, visit capstone-partners.com. Thomas, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you for having me. Do you have any memories of seeing something there when you were younger? Uh, you know, I mean, there was, there was, I guess Neighbor Fair was actually on the waterfront, but there was, what was that, art, was it Artquake? I think so. There was Artquake, and uh, of course, uh, there was the sort of excitement of, of the Christmas tree lighting, uh-huh. and um, I think the one of the first uh, remembrances I, I have have to do with the in modern times or relative modern times were the um, rallies in support of opposing measure nine and opposing measure 13. Yeah. And there's a really great uh, photograph that was on the front cover of the Oregonian with this crowd of people, including uh, Vera Katz and Earl Blumenauer. And in the back is my father. You can see my father uh. at this rally. Um, and in fact, later, you know, I really love the concept of it being the living room of Portland and when I first joined the board, well, immediately started uh, being the house band for the Christmas tree lighting, mm-hmm. which is really great fun to be able to then have the freedom to bring in like the 234th Army Band or Pacific Youth Choir or, or choruses from, you know, Franklin High School or other bands from uh, other parts of the uh, of the city, and and basically kind of try to curate sort of an inclusive. Christmas tree lighting, which included, you know, which had Jewish moments and maybe uh, a couple of verses of Old Lang Syne in, in Arabic. And then the tree itself, of course, has been glorious. And you mentioned the Christmas tree lighting. I feel like an event like that touches upon uh, a kind of particular DNA that Pioneer Courthouse Square has that almost seems reminiscent of like more of a small town's uh, commons or a small town square. Well, Portland is a pretty podunk town. I mean, that, that's what I, I loved about it from the very beginning. Uh, or, and when I, you know, there was a time of maybe 10 years ago where uh, talking about Portland, comparing to, to the other major cities on the West Coast, I would say, you know, um, Los Angeles is great as long as you don't want anything. San Francisco is almost too beautiful 
and therefore sketchy. Uh, Seattle has cosmopolitan aspirations and is trying really, really hard. Yes. And Portland is great because it's podunk and it doesn't care. Yep. And that's what I loved about Portland. Unfortunately, like with all the attention from the New York Times and like Portlandia, that horrible, um, you know, they really, um, what, what I think Portlandia did was it, you know, people weren't really like that, um, but it, it, people watched it and the people who liked it came here. And the city then became the television show. It mm-hmm. became more mm-hmm. sort of like, it, it, in the same way that I think there was a generation of like gay people who moved here after seeing My Own Private Idaho mm-hmm. uh, and that very much there, there's a definite population of people that came here specifically because they loved that film I love that going back to the square um, there have been various moments where I personally have used the square like for example when the band first started I brought the Del Rubio triplets to town uh-huh. uh, I had just seen Pee Wee Herman's Christmas special with a cavalcade of stars, like they're like fifty stars. Everybody from Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, Joan Rivers, Zsa Gabor, Magic Johnson, Little Richard, Katie Lang, Grace Jones. I mean, it goes on. It's it's ridiculous. And and um, the Del Rubio triplets. And so I brought them to town and got Mike Lindbergh, who was then city commissioner, uh-huh. to declare it uh, Del Rubio Triplets Day. And so we did like a little thing in the little that small little amphitheater inside uh-huh. the square. Uh-huh. Um, uh, in recent years, we've done all the Christmas tree lightings. Uh, and uh, there was an album, re- a release show. Oh, right. We did it. Oh, that's right. For like Get Happy. That. Yeah, that's right. We did Get Happy. That's right. I forgot about that. We did that in the square. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, we've done sort of various sing-alongs where, we, uh, where people you know, just gather and what the band plays. Those have always been a little hectic, mm-hmm. um, but, but kind of folksy. And the idea is like sort of like Ice cream social, sing along, good clean American fun, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. singing songs. But, you know, unfortunately, like the state of things, uh, especially in Portland public schools, is that that um, there just aren't the arts programs that there were. So, you know, American culture has never really been uh, good at singing. Uh, it doesn't. I mean, it's not. We have an unsingable national anthem, and <laughs> people, you know, even fewer people really dance. Um, so that's problematic. I think that singing together, dancing together, all of these things, these are the important things to, to inspire people to, to be better. And so uh, the sing-alongs and the Christmas tree sing-alongs and uh, those kinds of events, it, you know, when um, I, I think are really very important. Uh, and who cares if nobody can really sing? Yeah. Just, just a communal energy and that's, a sense of fun. That's right. That's right. And um, uh, several years ago when the Occupy movement was happening, my friend Kathleen Sadat and I, I was on tour actually in Europe. Kathleen Sadat, who, was, uh, who I worked under in City Hall, when both of us worked for Gretchen Kafori, one of the civil rights ordinance for the city of Portland. Um, uh, Kathleen and I decided that we would hold a... We were sort of aghast at how... Uh, the whole Occupy movement was being um, portrayed as a bunch of dirty hippies uh-huh. camped out, dirty hippies that, in these parks, and nobody could really identify with them. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, the message, the issues are getting lost, uh, and they're being sort of, um, 
usurped by images, which are, are which which undermine everything. And so I thought we thought we'd do a, a rally. So we did a rally uh, in Pioneer Courthouse Square, uh, an Occupy uh, rally, and we for, we the idea was sing along with the band, bring and we had Storm Large. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Storm Large and the band were going to do the sing along in the square, and we interspersed it with speakers. So we had like. Um, uh, Earl Blumenauer, Peter DeFazio, we had Tom Chamberlain, who was the head of the AFL-CIO. We had a couple of, we had Rabbi Rose and Rabbi Kahana from Temple Beth Israel. We had um, a Muslim leader. We had several uh, uh, members of the clergy. Uh, um, uh, and uh, and then a couple of community activists and then um, also a couple of occupiers. Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, we published a song, we made a songbook with songs to sing, and then we republished two essays, uh, which I had vetted with my Republican friends, uh, one by Nicholas, Nicholas Kristoff and one by Matt Tybee. And, and uh, I said, which I thought sort of summed up a lot of the meat of, of, of what the movement really was about. And I ran these editorials by my Republican friends. I said, is there anything in here that you disagree with? Mm-hmm. And there wasn't. So we republished those, put them in the songbook, and the whole idea was to sort of basically try to create a different v- visual mm-hmm. for what the Occupy movement was about, mm-hmm. at least in this city. And uh, the rally itself was like, a t- like there were 8,000 people there. It wasn't really covered by the media. But the but there were a lot. I saw a lot of Republicans in the in the in the crowd, and they were. It looked like a normal crowd of people, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought it was really inspiring, and it was exactly what I ho- hoped it was would be. Uh, and um, but it wasn't covered by really the press. Mm-hmm. And there's footage of it from there's footage of the entire rally on YouTube. Thank God there was this guy named, I think Ken Laurie is his name, who filmed the entire thing and posted it, which mm-hmm. is great. But it's, it's the only evidence of, of what was a really incredibly diverse... I mean, I think that if there had been more rallies like that all across the country, something, might, something, something would have shifted. Something yeah. would, but, but because that didn't happen and you had just a bunch of sort of punks who thought they were, you know, inventing something... Uh, and who, by the way, you know, like, parenthetically, I should say that we had a meeting with all the speakers right before, like, two days before the rally. Mm-hmm. And the the occupiers were not interested in hearing anything that anybody else had to say. Hmm. Not, they shut Rabbi Rose down. They shut down Kathleen Zadat. They just didn't want to, they didn't want, they weren't, they weren't asking questions. And they didn't want to hear anything that was different than what they thought. And I thought this is this is why this is going to fail, mm. because there's no real collaboration and there's no dialogue, mm. and there's no, there's there's not even an awareness of like the importance of. I mean, the thing the thing is like all, all uh, active like to be a real activist. You first of all you have to have commitment and be willing to go down with the ship, and then also one has to collaborate mm-hmm. and Makes be inclusive, me- and and that's. You know, I think part of what I think is so unfortunate about modern activism is that there is uh, no awareness, or seemingly 
a, a lack of awareness about the importance of compromise and discussing and and really truly um, everybody bending because that's ultimately the only way that, that but there's nothing in the culture that actually shows that so nobody's bending yeah yeah um, it strikes me that it's so easy as we're talking about Pioneer Courthouse Square and your experiences there um, well they all and, involve people yeah that's part of what I was going to say. And, and also that we're sort of easily going back and forth between talking about um, Christmas tree lightings and concerts and uh, rallies. rallies. I mean, you know, I'm on the board of Pentecostal Square and they're like, you know, up until COVID, they were, they, they had like 350 bookings a, a year. Yeah. And some on, on the same day. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so you can get a kind of core sample of, of the metro area from just sort of like following their events calendar. Right. Italian, there's the Italian fest, there's like, you know, Greek fest, there's, I mean, it's just, it's, it, and then of course there are the street preachers. I mean, it's just a, it, it is a colorful uh, kaleidoscope of, of characters. Now I would imagine as a musician, it would be in some ways kind of tough to perform there. Like you don't have the controlled conditions. You don't have the same acoustics. You don't have necessarily the audience's attention in the same way. You have like max trains going by and stuff. Like I've seen you and Pink Martini play at Arlene Schnitzer and at the Zoo Amphitheater. Um, and I'm just curious like what the stage, the musician's stage experience is like with the square compared to other venues you've played at? Well, I guess the most thrilling ones would be the Christmas tree lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, it's really great to actually uh, be in charge of the music that's sung mm-hmm. <laughs> and that people sing along to. Um, and it's, it's especially challenging these days. But, but there, there is a certain, there is certainly a roar of the crowd. I, I, you know, I wasn't there when Dave Chappelle did that impromptu show, uh-huh. but I thought to myself, that is really, that to me, you know, the, I, some members of the board were really up in arms about like the destruction, like the chaos in the crowd. Um, I, I didn't. I thought you couldn't ask for anything better, because this is really you. You want the square to be whatever it is. It should be the focus of of the town, mm-hmm. of the city, the epicenter of the city. And for once, it really, really was mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. moment. And. And in an un, sort of organic, un, relatively unplanned way. I like it when it's unplanned. When things are planned, it's it, it just it's always a kind of, it's never quite right. And like, it, it's possible to pull off really crazy things here because it is podunk. But the problem is, is that, that, that um, so far the, there aren't a lot of people with those kind of ideas and willingness and ability to actually implement them. Yeah, well, you know, they still come along. They uh, do. Uh, you think there's... Um... It's waiting to be active. I, I would say that these, everybody in the city, I should not say everybody, but I would say that, that a huge portion of the city is waiting to be activated. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They're waiting for, waiting for something, and it's not clear what it's going to be yet. But I think uh, there's reason to be optimistic it might come. I think uh, um, times of strife often produce great creativity uh you know there's that orson welles uh soliloquy in the movie the third man where he's talking to joseph oh right about the uh uh uh, for 50 30 years under the right yeah yeah under the borgias that uh, they had uh uh 
warfare, terror, blood, and rape, pillage, and plunder, but they produced Michelangelo, uh, Lu, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. Uh -huh. For 500 years in Switzerland, they had peace and brotherly love. What did that, what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> so good. When you're on stage, whether it's at Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall or an outdoor venue like the Washington Park Amphitheater, when you're on any kind of stage, like how aware are you of the crowd? Like, do you feel like you're as a performer, someone who feeds off the crowd's energy or do you get in a zone where you're just maintaining eye contact with your fellow musicians and you're not too aware of the crowd? I think I'm aware of the crowd. I have to be because Because if, because if, 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 because there has to, you have to, one has to really sense the energy of the crowd and if, which may lead to changing the set list and constantly and frequently does actually. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think it, I mean, there has to be, there has, you, one, I actually, I love going out, um, into a hall or into a place where we're performing as people are coming in just to get a sense of the feeling of the people somehow interesting um, the vibe the vibe yeah like when we play in New York like at Town Hall I'm usually out front smoking greeting people and just getting a sense of like who who's in the house I love that I love that and I mean, so similarly like uh well, so for the Christmas tree lightings, generally, well, we go there for sound check in the afternoon, but then I um, come a little bit early and kind of linger, walk around just through the crowd just to see, just to have a sense. I don't know that it's really anything, but I, I, I think it helps. Generally, when I do that, the performance goes better. I believe it. I believe it. Um, do you feel like you have to sort of psych yourself up for a performance? No. No, not unless it's a, if it's a classical performance, then all bets are off. I get very nervous. But at this point, like, I guess I've grown more comfortable with the idea of that not everything has to be perfect all the time. And that it's the sort of the general vibe that is most important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, if people are going to bother to leave their houses these days and go out it's important to, to respect that and to really be thankful and grateful. Because mm -hmm. without them, we're nothing. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. mean, we're not nothing, but we're, we're, I mean, we're something, but it's, you know, it's, um, it, it's better when, when, when there does seem to be some sort of roar of the crowd, whether that's a literal roar or just a, a feeling of waves of love, of energy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've pointed out something obvious that I didn't, uh, which is that we're sitting here talking about this when you're probably going through the longest uh, gap you've ever had uh, in your, you know, adult life as a performer without performing. You That's know, true. I was just watching a, a, a YouTube clip of like Ron Carter and Herbie Hancock talking about what it was going to be like the first time they got on stage and how Herbie Hancock was probably saying that he was probably going to have tears in his eyes and Ron Carter was just talking about how he was marking the days off on his calendar till his show at the Blue Note this fall, you know. Wow. So what's it been like for you to go so long 
Uh, well, I've got a lot of projects to work on. Uh, my piano teacher's diaries being one of them. Also finishing various albums that I started. I started a surf record with Satan's Pilgrims 25 years ago that I'm finally finishing. Fun! It's a surf version of Rhapsody in Blue, among other things. Um, there's a, a record we recorded with the symphony in 2009 that finally is going to be released. And we did it last year, I did a recording with Darcel, uh, Walter Cole. Uh, yeah. And um, the oldest living, performing drag performer in the world. And again, according to Guinness Book of World Records. Um, so, and then I've got Rooster Rock, where, where, uh, Hunter and I have historically, you know, built forts out of driftwood mm-hmm. uh, on this beautiful island sort of on the Columbia. And um, so I haven't really missed it so much, I don't think. Um, this, and I feel like this period of time has been really, really good because it's a, a time of self-reflection and um, couldn't come a moment too soon mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, financially, like, it's a, it's a, big blow but fortunately we have a CFO who several years ago made everybody employees and not independent contractors so everybody was able to collect unemployment Mm -hmm. and um, which saved I mean if 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 that wasn't the case the band would be toast and and even in a non-pandemic time you know historically bands with large ensembles you know that's that's harder to pull off economically going on tour and stuff like that you've just got more musicians to pay each night right that's right um that's right but there's there's something inescapably great about the kind of ensemble energy of a pink martini show right because it doesn't rely on one person i mean it relies on everybody Mm -hmm. and um you know they there have been whole shows where I've been in a bad mood, but that's not noticed by anybody except the band members. Unfortunately, they definitely notice if I'm in a bad mood. Um, uh, and that doesn't help their energy. But the the band is so... Um, the members of the band are so dialed into what's out there. Mm-hmm. And and um, and they, always, they almost always deliver. Mm-hmm. I mean, they deliver every time, but... They really deliver most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you someone who uh, favors recording versus performing, no, or I vice versa? Perform, yeah, recording is nerve-wracking because it's like it's just it's it's sort of uh, I get too it, it it's too it's not it doesn't feel real. I mean, it it, it feels what what is about recording? I think. Yeah, I'm just not. I'm not really good at recording. I think I'm good at performing, and I think the band, the band, is good at both. Um, but I think our best work is really live. That's what I think. Well, that says something about um, the energy that you all feel, and and the way you're emboldened by the crowd and the set of circumstances, and and that. Um, there's something organic about it. I think, you know, um, in a studio, it, it can be, for a lot of musicians, the most rewarding thing, but but it's not because it has sort of the ener- that kind of energy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it requires a kind of concentration and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, staying up all night working on, you know, one bass part or something. Right. Uh, 
um, but, uh, you know, uh, like jazz musicians are like that too. Like, uh, you know, they, a lot of times like they, they don't want to do overdubs and stuff like that. They want to rehearse as much as they need to. And, and then, then just do it, do it in one take. That's you true. Know, or that two is, takes. That's totally true. That so, ex- yeah, that explains. Yes. Uh, and you know, and that's part of what's interesting about Pink Martini is that it's a, a hybrid of these different genres and, and influences. Right. Um, and those different genres have very different approaches to performing. Yes, they do. <laughs> and and recording. Mm-hmm. 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 I never really thought about it that way, but that's true. Thomas, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you for having me, Brian Libby. <laughs> all right. I love uh, all the things that you're working on, and I love uh, all of this attention to uh, the architecture of the city, which I think is... Um, well, the past is... I mean, I love the past. Alex, thanks for joining us on the Search of Portland. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to talk with you, and I enjoyed your book, uh, Railway Palaces uh, of Portland. And uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you got interested in the book um, and how it fits into some of your broader explorations. Sure. Uh, well, when the book really has been in the making for a, quite a long time. Uh, it started as an article uh, commission Back when I was working as a freelance journalist in the aughts, um, I got commissioned to do a story on Portland Union Station in 2005. And that sent me into looking at some of the historical materials that were at Oregon Historical Society. At the time, the drawings for Union Station were sitting there. Uh, Portland Archives now has care of them, but at that time they were at OHS. And there was this mislabeled drawing that was in there. I was So I was digging through all of these Union Station drawings and suddenly there's this other one that says it's supposed to be William M. Whidden, um, who of course is the architect of Portland Hotel, uh-huh. um, that it's supposed to be an early drawing for Union Station by Whidden, uh-huh. which it was not. Um, it was a drawing by McKim Mead White and was an elevation of the Grand Central Pastor Station that would have been built at the head of the park blocks had yeah. certain financial things not happened the way they did. Yeah. Um, and, and that sort of became a rabbit hole. It, it would have been the largest railway station in the world had it been built for its time. But that's more a reflection of how like infantile the development of railway stations were than it necessarily was about like Portland's status, per se. Um, but it would have been bigger than Grand Central Station in New York had it been built. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. this would have been a considerable thing. And sitting right across the park blocks with a forecourt and a forecourt fountain that would be aligned with it. Like, it would have been this great sort of like almost early Beaux-Arts kind of approach to the way the city would have been laid out. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, uh, how is that a reflection of, of the time? You know, you have America in the uh, 19th century, driving through the, the Golden Spike and, and creating the Transcontinental Railroad. And it, it seems like that's um, really what sets everything off in Portland and in a number of cities throughout the West. And uh, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. It seems like that's where a lot of your research and explorations go um, with this, this book and otherwise. And, and maybe people don't quite realize, you know, sometimes
sometimes we think of our own times and the way some of our own technologies like, you know, cellular phones or social media ha have transformed the world. But um, there, there may be no greater transformational moment than, than what en was enabled by transportation and the railroads in, in, uh, and what it meant to cities like Portland in the West, especially. Yeah, sure. I mean, the development of the railway network across the West through the 19th century, the last half, essentially, the 19th century, uh, it's almost the equivalent and in many ways a larger scale than the development of, say, Internet technology. Uh, it was the first time that the West was networked in any kind of meaningful way. Uh, so to be on the network could be the difference between your town being a tiny town or your town being a major city. And certainly that was the case for Portland. Uh, the first transcontinental railroad was uh, finished in 1869, but linked to San Francisco and Sacramento to the rest of the nation. And at that time, if you wanted to get to the rest of the country, you had to take a boat to San Francisco, which added another three days to your journey. And, you know, it's, so, so Portland was also, not only was it more distant from the rest of the country, but it was also kind of dependent upon California in a way, in an economic way and also a political and cultural way. And a lot of people in Portland at the time were pushing for a rail connection of their own because they wanted that kind of independence that it would bring, uh, both in a real literal sense, but also kind of in a psychological sense too, right? Like this notion that you're your own metropolis. Um, you see rhetoric from the time, like promotional stuff saying like Portland, the metropolis of the Northwest, that kind of stuff, you know? Um, so there was kind of this status symbol to having the railroad as well as a very physical real difference. Uh, and when the railroad was finally completed to Portland, um, I mean, there were many attempts, but the one that finally ends up being finished first is the Northern Pacific, uh, comes to Portland in 1883. And it kicks off a huge building boom for the city. Uh, this building boom actually was known in its time as the Villard boom after Henry Villard, who was the main executive leading the charge of the Northern Pacific at the time. Yeah. And if you look at like the cast iron buildings of Old Town, like the Blagian Block and all those sorts of buildings that are down there, um, and the ones, of course, that have been lost that you see in those minor white photos that used to be on front and, and such, um, all of those buildings are really part of the Villard boom. They're that 1880s boom of all these very rapidly built cast iron structures we often forget cast iron is kind of like the tilt-up concrete of its era. It was the way you built quickly. Yeah. Um, and so like that quick sort of upward thrust of downtown Portland, of what was downtown Portland and is now Old Town, is the Villard boom. And it probably would not have happened when it did if the railroad had not been completed in 1883. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, I've wanted, of course, to ask you more specifically about Villard. And, and uh, in my preparations, uh, uh revisiting his biography it was kind of incredible what a what a noteworthy he uh, life he led even before long before he even um, was involved in in railroads like he's a he's a newspaper reporter in the Civil War and, and uh, um, he goes on this kind of incredible journey both physically and literally from uh, his native Germany to um, the east coast of the US to the American West so um, I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about um, what a kind of towering figure he was and, and also represents a kind of uh, dramatic arc as well. Not to say that he was ever, you know, a popper or anything, but, um, you know, uh, there was a kind of, of crest and, and fall that happened uh, as well that uh, is part of the Portland Hotel story, the, the, the long period in which its construction was incomplete. 
Yeah, so he's from Germany. He was kind of a bit of a political radical as a young man and had to flee Germany to the United States, um, perhaps for his safety, perhaps for his reputation. I'm not sure which. Uh, and he changes his name to Villard. He's born Henry Hilgard or Heinrich Hilgard. Um, and he changes his name to Villard based on the name of one of his, if I remember correctly, one of his uh, school roommates uh-huh. was named Villard. It was from a fairly well-off French family. Um, and I always wondered about, like, the name change because he still used a foreign name, not an American-sounding name. He didn't become Smith or Jones or anything. Yeah. Um, and he also was uh, known for the rest of his life to wear European fashion, to have an accent, to never pretend to be something that he's not, at least not be European. Uh, but I think there's something to be said about being French in the 19th century that you can't say about being German uh, you know, Germans were still being treated like the outsider and kind of not quite Anglo-Saxon, whereas there was this long history of friendly relations between the United States and France. So I, I think there was a status thing of like being French. If I have to be European, at least I'll be French. Um, but he ends up marrying into the uh, family of William Lloyd Garrison, the noted radical abolitionist. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a co-founder of the Republican Party back when it was an abolitionist party. Uh-huh. Um and was, you know, very much involved in all those sort of political things. And then after that career as a journalist, he goes back to Germany and he gets approached by investors who had sunk money into foreign investment, in which case this was like railroads in this place called Oregon that they'd never really heard of and didn't know much about. Uh-huh. And Villard was perceived of in Germany as being a guy who knew America because he had known Lincoln and he had known Grant and he had, you know, been around as a reporter and, and he kind of knew the American scene. And so they sent him to the United States to be the representative and see what was going on. And Villard's kind of this guy who gets himself involved in something and kind of gets deeper and deeper in whatever he's in. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I can do it better, so I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this sort of kind of in a short version is like how he goes from being a representative of a bunch of investors to basically running a bunch of railroad companies uh-huh. in the United States. Uh-huh. Um, but, of course, he also gets himself financially invested. And when he's running the Northern Pacific in the 1880s, he's helping finance some of it with his personal finances. He has loans that are on his own personal guarantee. His mansion he's building in New York is mortgaged to pay for the railroad. Uh, so he ends up, like, really committing himself. And when the company, like, oversends itself in the late 1880s, or late 1883, I should say, uh, he ends up going bust as a result. He goes broke and has to go back to Germany and kind of hide out for a while and lick his wounds. And one of the projects he paid for, of course, was the Portland Hotel, which he commissioned in, I think, 81 or 82. And it ends up being open to the air, uh, an abandoned project, essentially, because he's gone bust. And the company that takes over really isn't interested in all these sort of vanity and and ambitious projects that he was engaged with. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it, like a couple years or maybe more like five years that the hotel set uh, incomplete? So I believe the project was abandoned in 1884, if I remember correctly, and it sat abandoned until at least 1887. And then there's some like rumors that something's going to happen for the next couple of years. But construction, I don't I think, doesn't resume until either 88 or 89. So it's quite a considerable time, and it was popularly known in the Portland scene as Villard's Ruins. <laughs> and there's this great painting of it uh, by, was it Francis Grotjean, I think, that's sitting in the dining room at Jake's, at the original Jake's um, 
uh, crawfish house, right? Yeah. Um, so if you go if you go in there into the bar and you look down the length of the bar, you look through the alcove that goes into the dining room, and it's right at the at the top of the wall. You're oh, wonderful. It. Uh, and that building and, and Jake's were even a subject of a, a previous In Search of Portland podcast episode. Uh, I wish I had known that then, uh, but that's, it's fascinating. It's everything's connected, right? Everything uh, is connected. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it struck me a little bit as you were talking about the, the Villard biography, um, that there's something that's almost, um, contemporary about his life. Um, I feel like there's a little bit of a natural chameleon there or that there, there are these distinct chapters and he, you know, he's a, if I remember right, he um, really um, was quite a reporter and was recover was covering Lincoln's original presidential campaign and then the civil war itself. And really uh, that impacted uh, uh, him a lot. And, um, and yet uh, a few years later, he's this kind of railroad tycoon. Um, and then that too is, is all kind of over, somewhat quickly um uh, is that your sense too that that uh, it feels like you could easily imagine like a movie about him or something like that i think the problem would be trying to figure it all in two hours i mean <laughs> it's it there's just too many turns and twists and things uh but i mean this is a guy who's really eloquent and able to persuade people very easily um i mean the most infamous example of this is a piece of Wall Street legend now known as the Blind Pool, where he basically goes door to door in the early 1880s with a hat, essentially. He says, like, give me $8 million. I have a great investment. I can't tell you what it is, but I can guarantee it's going to pay off. And he does it. Like, in the space of a couple of days, people give him this money. Um, and this is what he uses to gain control of his third railroad, which is the Northern Pacific, which at the time was the largest corporation in America. So this would be like going around. I did the numbers on, um, on like you know the the inflation calculator, and try to figure out. This is like going around door to door and asking a bunch of people to give you blind two hundred million dollars, and then using it to gain control of Apple or Microsoft today. Yeah, it almost makes him sound like there might have been just a little bit of a con artist in him. It, it, perhaps, but in the way it's it, what's kind of interesting and weird about Villard is it's kind of like he's a con artist, but he's using it for something he actually believes in. Yeah, like he actually believes the stuff that he spins. He's always telling stories about like how great some place is going to be, the future of what Oregon's going to look like. Right? Uh -huh. like he has all this faith in these things. I mean, this is part of the reason why he endows the University of Oregon, because the state legislature is not. He's like, you need to have a major institution of intellectual learning in the state because it's going to be a great state. You can't not have this. Mm -hmm. So he endows this university with the money. And like, I think that's like 1881 or so, something like that. You know, it 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 brings to mind a, a kind of larger idea for me that uh, I feel like so often I've talked about how compared to other parts of the United States, Oregon and Portland in relative terms, lack capital wealth. They're not old money families here. You know, it's a lot different from the East Coast. And, and that has impacted the personality of the city. There's a kind of collaborative culture here, kind of scrappy, do it yourself, um, uh, and, and that sort of thing. And, and uh, um, you know, it seems like Villard, um, both in his wealth and his kind of ambitions, almost... Uh, is like a rare case where we started to have that kind of figure in the city and it, and it wasn't meant to be in the long term for better and worse. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that there are, you know, bigger cities in America that have or ha either have or have had numerous Villards in a certain sense, um, but Portland hasn't had a lot of those figures. 
Yeah, I mean, there were families and institutions in the 19th century that were quite wealthy in the city, and some of them did make it into maybe like second generation or so, but oftentimes the money dissipates after that. It either just goes to many different heirs, or they don't decide to carry on the tradition or what have you, um, or, or the thing that happens most often, and actually Villard is an example of this, they sell out. Um, they see like, oh, this corporation from Omaha or New York or Chicago is offering me so much money for what I've built. Sure, I'll take shares in exchange and get out and retire. So, you know, the founders of the U.S. National Bank end up retiring here to Oakland, where I'm living now, and they're cashing out. Um, and the people who were the founders of the Oregon Steam Navigation Company, which made tons of money, sell it to Villard. It's like, you know what, we'll sell out because we're going to get way more money and we can have the good life and move on. And so you don't have that kind of constant institutional wealth that you might see in, yeah, like a Boston or New York or a Philadelphia. Um, and, and that happens a lot. Like companies have this history too, right? Like Willamette Industries selling out to Weyerhaeuser or Georgia Pacific and its weird history and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we could talk for just a second about the hotel itself. Uh, uh, I got kind of dazzled reading about some of the different people who have stayed there over time. I was reading about Mark Twain uh, um, uh, speaking at the um, Markham Grand uh, uh, Theater, um, uh, kind of uh, on what would be like the northwest corner Pioneer Courthouse Square, the American Bank building site today. Uh, I read about... Teddy Roosevelt uh, speaking from his kind of balcony window um, uh, uh, there, and and of course a number of, of U.S. presidents stayed there, and and so um, uh, uh, there are any number of directions we could go here with the hotel itself, but whether it's the architecture or kind of the kind of social history, uh, I wondered if you could talk about uh, the role it played and and what you enjoy most about its history. Yeah, in many ways, the hotel became the social center of the city, at least for certain classes of people, especially for people who are coming from outside, big dignitaries, things like that. Uh, I mean, it's a grand hotel. It's the city's first grand hotel. And in a time when the grand hotel as a concept was extremely young, I mean, the concept of the grand hotel is the palace in San Francisco, 1876, is the first one in the world. Uh -huh. And so you have Portland having one mm, about 15 years later, uh, which is significantly lagging behind San Francisco, but it's still significant. And in all the cities in the Northwest, Portland was still the heavyweight city. This is where you went if you were going to the Northwest. So if you're going to do a book tour or whatever, what have you. Um, and so for outsiders and dignitaries, it was obviously a big deal, but it was also a big deal for local communities to use as well, to go have tea there, to go have dinner there, to go smoke a cigar there, to go have coffee, what have you the lower levels were filled with what we might consider to be concessions today of there's a, a Rathskeller, which is a kind of German bar. Um, there were tobacconists and, and, you know, like barber shops and all the rest of the stuff, the whole kind of city within a city underneath. Yeah. And like, even to the end when it sort of faded, it was still a bit of a tradition. Like I remember my grandmother talking about, like she went there with her family to go have like tea with her mother or grandmother or something like that. Um, the thing about it, though, is that there's actually a relationship between the architecture and this practice in the sense that the hotel was deeply expensive. Uh -huh. It was really, really expensive to build and expensive to operate. And so the managers were losing money hand over fist for the first about four or five years. And the only way they could make it pay was when they realized they had to be 
having more business than just the residents in the hotel, just the people staying there. They needed the community to use the hotel. So they started having things like concerts to bring people to come in. And they started trying to make the restaurants and the food services like aim out at the local community and make it a place where you want to see and be seen. So when you talk about like, uh, the modern, you know, uh, Pointer Square Square is being like, you know, the the people almost become the spectacle of what's going on in the square. Uh-huh. In a sense, that's kind of a resonance with what was going on when the hotel was there. Very different structures, but there's some similarities to some of the things that was going on in like the social and cultural realm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think of uh, the layers of that site and how it was a gathering place in different times. Like, uh, because of course, even before the Portland Hotel, you have the central school there too. So it was gathering school children, then it was a hotel, and then it was, uh, well, a parking garage. I guess that's another kind of gathering place. <laughs> uh, one Very we don't 20th wanna... century gathering place. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and maybe finally, um, with regard to the demolition, do you do you feel like that was something that was inevitable, or or that there could have been another path where it would be still standing today? Uh, it's possible it could have been. I mean, there were definitely um, there were plans to build other things in that spot, which is part of what doomed the building. There was supposed to be a tower that was going to be built there at one point uh, that the Meyer Frank family was going to pay for. Um, and then that got canceled for a variety of other reasons. Um, but, you know, would the hotel have had, like, the architectural integrity or the physical integrity to still exist? Yes, possibly. But it's also hard to think about how this very old building that had probably not been maintained to its utmost peak for the last 20 years of its life, like, how would it have survived the 50s and the 60s and made it through to you know, a time when it might have been rehabbed. Like, we can see it being rehabbed maybe in the 70s or the 80s, but the 60s, I doubt anyone would do that. They'd be thinking about how to make it modern, how to reskin it if they were going to rebuild it at all, right? Um, so it's probably inevitable that it was going to be torn down, unfortunately. And I feel similarly about the station that was never built at the top of the park blocks. Like, uh-huh. if this thing had been built knowing like what Amtrak cut service back to like 1971, like there's no way they would have just abandoned the thing. Right. And eventually it would have probably fallen down or been torn down. Yeah. Um, I still wish I could have seen it, but I also think like I probably wouldn't have seen it. It would have been gone before I was here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they're, they're transforming that uh, former post office uh, that is really close to where this uh, train station, this depot would have been. And uh, um, it's not, quite so outlandish to if, if things in, in in our own cities or country's history had gone a little bit differently we could have maybe built like a high-speed rail station on the site of where the the grand depot would have been uh, i think that would have been pretty cool it would have been an interesting sort of rhyming of history wouldn't it yeah yeah you bet you bet well, uh, maybe we can end there, but uh, in the meantime, I will say, uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. 
If you're a homeowner, you might want to go online and check out Mutual's Natural Stone Catalog at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. Recently, I've been asking friends what memories of Pioneer Courthouse Square they might like to share. One person, with tongue firmly placed in cheek, mentioned the Portland Trailblazers rally introducing Greg Oden after the towering center was chosen first in the 2007 NBA draft. Oden's career didn't work out, but if the Blazers ever do win that elusive second championship, this is where the parade will end. Several friends mentioned protests they'd attended. One recalled a candlelight vigil for incarcerated Native American activist Leonard Peltier. Another friend had fairly recently attended the 1,000th straight Friday rally opposing the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Then there was my friend Daria, who in 2003 attended what she called a breastfeed in. She said, quote, It was a little bit like a sit-in, only we gathered with several others and breastfed our babies while we sat in protest of the Iraq War. (laughs) But for every protest, there's a celebration. One friend mentioned attending the Festival of Flowers at Pioneer Courthouse Square each Rose Festival. Another mentioned Sand in the City, the annual charity sandcastle building contest. My friend Orna told me about how in the 1990s, each December, her boyfriend used to drive to Southern Oregon gather mistletoe, tie sprigs of it in red ribbon, and sell them on one corner of the square to Christmas shoppers. A friend of mine from high school, Christy, was interviewed at Pioneer Courthouse Square several years ago for a TV show called The Help Desk, in which people off the street were invited to seek psychological counseling from celebrities. While cameras rolled, Christy briefly talked with Russian chess champion Garry Kasparov about her relationship with her father. My friend Stan shared a great story involving the late, great Portland singer-songwriter Elliot Smith. This was back in 1998, on August 25th to be exact, the release date for Smith's major label debut record, XO, coming on the heels of his Academy Award nomination for Best Song. Stan writes, quote, I was working downtown, and during my lunch break, I went to purchase the album. I sat on the steps of Pioneer Courthouse Square with many others on what was a nice sunny day. As I ate my lunch and listened to the album on my Sony Discman, out of the corner of my eye, I could see someone sitting next to me looking in my direction at the ground where the CD case was. Finally, I glanced over, and it was Elliot Smith watching me listen to his brand new music. I took my headphones off and said something like, wow, what a coincidence. Elliot was amused in his low-key way, but he asked how I liked what I was hearing. We talked for about two minutes as he waited for a car to take him to the airport. And then suddenly he was gone. Thanks, Dan. I also talked to Jason Modi, a volunteer for the India Cultural Association, who has helped stage the India Festival at Pioneer Courthouse Square every year since 1995, at least every year other than 2020. He said, quote, You get a lot of foot traffic there. People hear the music and get drawn to the atmosphere. We don't do any marketing. We just put up the tent and it fills up. The location is ideal for festivals the Pan-African Festival, the Chinese Festival, all of them come there because it brings people together. Having it at the square allows us to attract a more diverse mix, too. 
I think it's because it really feels festive with so many people jammed together. Especially our youngsters, they love that noise and the clapping. And the performers just love the attention. We've thought about moving out at times because of the security issues with downtown. You do get some bad elements sometimes. But we keep coming back because we like the openness and the energy. It's become an icon for us. End quote. Well, Jason, I think that's pretty well said and a great note to end on. As downtown Portland begins to recover this year, with shoppers and office workers and hotel guests, there's no doubt that Pioneer Courthouse Square will continue to be at the center of it all. In Search of Portland is produced by X-Ray FM and part of the X-Ray Podcast Network, which you can find at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is edited by Jonathan Covington Brem. Thanks, Jonathan. And thank you to our sponsors, Mutual Materials and Capstone Partners. Thanks as well to Chad Clark and his band Beauty Pill for providing music, to Maxwell Griffin for graphic design, and thanks to my partner, Valerie Smith, for both editing my writing and providing lots of moral support. Thank you, too, to Nikolai Kruger, who creates an original artwork to accompany each episode of this podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening. Bye for now.